A bad day in the circus is like, at least to me, like a thousand times better than a good day in Walmart. I would be very interested to kind of see how a company could be structured in that way and kind of the social experiment it would be in the end, you know? The best advice I got was just look at your monthly paycheck. Are you happy with that? If the answer is yes, just continue. When you receive additional shows at the end or you do stuff and you get one, treat it like a bonus and be happy. Hello and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast sponsored by Harlequin Floors, the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Our podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. Today we're talking to Chris McGreevy. From a small town in north of England, Chris grew up representing Great Britain in acrosport, studying at music college and coaching acrobatics before making his transition to the stage. Since entering the entertainment industry, Chris has performed and managed some of the world's biggest stages as a porter, aerialist, artist coach, and artistic coordinator for companies including Cirque du Soleil and Franco Dragon. Chris has extensive experience with the inner workings of a large circus company, both on and off the stage. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to meet you both. Hello. <laughs> we want to get started. Well, I want to get started in explaining uh, for those who don't live and breathe the circus world as you do, what is acrosport and how does that translate into uh, what you do now? What is acrosport? Okay. So I'll describe it first, I guess, relative to the circus world, just because that was what I had in my head. It's basically a competitive form of hand-to-hand and banking in terms of if you know those disciplines from circus. When anyone asks me what I do that isn't really from the circus world, my kind of jokey answer is like I kind of pick up and throw people, which in in the kind of the, the simplest terms, that's what I do. But it's it's kind of like there's music, there's some choreography, and then there's hand-to-hand, and then there's banking kind of in a competitive format. I can go further, but I don't know if that gives you uh, enough. And and so it's it's an official it's an official sort of competition. When you say you uh, represented Great Britain, like where were you competing? Where do these meets get held? And you know how how does that work in the in the competition world? Sure. So it's kind of a subsidiary of gymnastics. So in the way that if you watch the Olympics, there is artistic gymnastics, which is all the apparatus. There's rhythmic gymnastics, which has the hoop and the ball and the ribbon. There's now trampoline gymnastics as well, which is on the trampoline. And then it's gone through many names, but it used to be sports acro. It's been acro sport, maybe acrobatic gymnastics now, but it's still part of the same governing body as those other um, disciplines. It is not an Olympic sport. I don't foresee it being an Olympic sport anytime soon, but it follows a similar format. So in terms of representing the country, there's still a governing body in the UK, British Gymnastics. And then competitions would range anything from just standard international meets that is like club to club. Versus once you start representing your country, you have uh, European Championships, World Championships, World Cups, and the I guess the biggest you can go is World Games, which is the like Olympics for non-Olympic sports, which happens every four years. Such a <laughs> elaborate and professional answer. <laughs> yeah, no one knows what acro sport is really. It's such a it's a tiny it's a tiny sport in the grand scheme of gymnastics. I mean. Like we we paid for ourselves to represent our country, you know. We would 
I remember packing shopping bags to pay for flight tickets to do World Cups and things like that. So it's it's relatively unknown, especially in the US. It's it's a bit more known in Europe, but yeah, the rest of the world does not acro spotters. Mm. And how do you transition from that to the stage? So, so like I said, there's a number of circus disciplines that cross over quite heavily as a basic skill set. The main being hand to hand and banking. But in terms of my personal transition, I was lucky that the club that I was competitive for had already had gymnasts go to Cirque du Soleil before me, and like. I knew people in that industry as a start. So ever since I was kind of, my first sexual I saw was Dralion. And then, but I remember the pivotal moment being uh, Salt in Banco in a big top where I was like, I could actually do this or I want to do this. And then from there, it was, it's our coach knew casting through Cirque and it became like a regular discussion back and forth at Worlds and Europeans that there's, the Cirque would have a um, booth where you could talk to them. And then it became a discussion between Cirque and coaches when a specific performer would finish competing so that they were essentially allowed to talk to them on a casting basis. Now, I never ended up going to Cirque. I ended up uh, going towards Dragon, which came completely from my coach showing me a flyer for an audition that was happening in London. And I had no idea what it was. And I was just like, sure, I'll go audition for this. And um, that ended up translating to a job down the road. So. That was my transition into the stage. And what was that like for you? Like I can imagine such a big, I mean, obviously Acrosport has a level of theatricality in it, but it's another whole realm when you're going on stage in front of 2,000 people every night, right? So what, what was that transition like for you personally? So there's a number of layers, I think, to unpack there. The first one being my particular time span of knowing that I was going to go and perform from when I was going to go to go from comp- competition was super short. So I ended up being an, a replacement for an injury. And so I got called by Dragon's casting and asked if I could immediately go to Macau, which I couldn't because I had my final world in like two weeks. And when I told them this, they're like, we'll call you back. And thankfully they did call me back and okay, we can wait for you. So I organized basically to fly from my competition to Macau, which being 20 years old, that was just a trip into itself. So there's the whole kind of culture shock. There's the shock of going from, like I said, we had no money. I was like working in the gym, working odd jobs, like like literally my bank balance was never in triple digits to then the first, <laughs> the first paycheck coming in. I'm like, oh, this is like a real job now. Like, I can go and eat in restaurants. So there's all that. And then in terms of actual, for me, it was, and so if we talk mentally about the difference between a competition and the stage, I think I was young and stupid when I first went there. I was like, oh, like it's a a show. It's so, so much less stress than a competition, which in some regards it is for, for the type of show that the House of Dancing Water is. There's always another show the next day or that following evening. So there isn't the kind of build up and like external pressure of you must perform absolute at your peak right now. There's kind of, okay, here's where our level is. You want to hit it. You want to maintain it. And so that removes a lot of that external kind of competition style pressure. 
but it adds another pressure of consistency over a long period of time. There's no peaks, there's no troughs, there's no builds, there's no downtime. You do the same thing two times a day, five days a week over the span of years, ideally. So it's, it's, it's different, but both have their positives, both have their negatives. So um, that's what I remember thinking when, when I was in my early 20s. Uh, was there anything that really surprised you about um, working on stage or in, for um, live entertainment? I think the whole backstage, it, it was nothing on stage. I mean, once you're on stage, you're kind of alone the way you are on a competition floor and you're left with your wits and your skill to kind of help you survive. I mean, I was fortunate in that my discipline, it had music, so I could count music. I had to do choreography, so I knew relatively how to stay on a beat and learn steps and this and count to eight and all those things. So that wasn't a stress that I think people from other disciplines carry. But it's like the backstage thing and dealing with so many people. I mean, House is such a giant show. Just remembering the names. By the time you go, I went into the show, I, didn't, I still didn't know the names of all the performers, you know. And so you see people backstage and you see them without makeup in the day and then makeup backstage. And that is the shocking thing of trying to be like overwhelmed by names of technicians, names of performers, names of people opposite you on the stage. Like, and then you've got scuba divers that are like, you see their eyes just through a little kind of like a mask, you know? So that I, that I remember being the most kind of surprising and overwhelming thing to get used to. <laughs> It when you put it that way, it's so true, isn't it? When you're coming into a big machine like that, and then you're then you've got to get on stage and work with there's like a hundred people around you, you know, on any given show. For sure, I mean that doesn't even count for like the antics that go on backstage, you know, that the whatever small dramas are currently going on, whatever was mentioned in the tapé rouge or a meeting or like so and so broke up with <laughs> so and so, and you know the. And then just the, the like pranks that people would play, you know, to keep it interesting backstage, you know, that that yeah. isn't really what happens in a competition, you know, it's all very serious <laughs> most, most of the time. <laughs> so you moved from being um, into like you, you were in performance, but then you sort of moved into uh, management of performance and coordination and in the circus mm -hmm. realm. And one of the roles that you've held is, is like artistic coordinator. So explain to our audience like what an artistic coordinator is and what they do. Yeah, I'll explain that first and I'll go the story of how that came about. So at least artistic coordinator is a term that I believe used to be used a lot in touring shows and then was kind of disappeared and then appeared again in name at least at House of Dancing Water but not so much in, in what it was. So the role I held mainly was a management role over the artistic elements of the show. In the closest kind of, that people may understand is as an assistant artistic director, although it differs in some realms from that as well. But in the, the idea that there's still a, an artistic director that has final say over everything, deals with actual disciplinary contracts money all those things budgets but on a day-to-day -day of choreography storytelling artistic imagery emergency scenarios if something goes wrong if something is cut from the show um, coordinating injuries in terms of 
how we're going to deal with that, who's going to replace who from an artistic standpoint versus an acrobatic standpoint, which would be a head coach's job. So kind of tying it all together, it was on an operational day-to-day basis, a coordination between what would traditionally be, I think, stage management in a theater world and coaching in a circus world. It's kind of like a, a glue that, that bounces between those two things. And how did you get, how did you transition into that role? And, and how, how was that like for you to go into a more management position after being a performer on stage? I've held a few kind of, I guess, management or in terms of managing people, a few roles that manage people. Um, so the first one being a title that was choreography captain, although it basically referred to you're in charge of male choreography for the show, um, which naturally led towards artistic coordinator for house. So it's different levels of responsibility and different levels of like as, as a captain, which the choreography captain is, you're still amongst the cast. And so the etiquette that you have to maintain with performers is still on a very co-worker type basis. The same as being an artist coach one of the other shows I did, you're kind of managing from within. You're just kind of listening to people's problems. You're relaying that to the offstage coaching staff or the directors. And you're kind of being a voice for the people that you're amongst. Whilst also kind of coaching a little bit, teaching choreography a little bit and all that stuff. And then to make the transition from managing from within to managing externally was both a gift and a curse in terms of the way I went, because I did it on the same show where I was had previously been a performer. So it was good because I'd already built relationships with the cast, so I could speak to them very candidly. The negative of that is that they could also speak to me very candidly. So kind of putting, working to put up a barrier of like, okay, I'm your boss here, and we have to talk like this, and we have to have these difficult conversations, and this needs to stay at work but please don't talk to me about work when we go for a drink at a bar at the end of the week. And so it's, it's a catch 22, you know, it's like, it's good in some respects. It's, it makes life easier, makes it harder in others. Likewise, in, uh, even on my, on my other show on uh, Paramore, where I was a, uh, artist coach, this is like, it was given to me very early when we all came together as a new group. So you didn't have years of, of building these relationships. So you're kind of like, testing the waters and it's like okay can can we go about it this way okay the group doesn't like that okay maybe we try this um rising house everything was kind of very set up and it was like more slowly turning the large boats if you wanted to change something rather than like throwing spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and it's okay everyone likes that okay that's that's what we're going to do for now so i had a few very different uh experiences i don't know if you have like very or specific uh memories or things that you really enjoy from the day-to-day from being a performer and from being an artist, artistic coordinator. And uh, I don't know, different shows, what's similar, like maybe a rundown of what a day-to-day is and then what makes it, you know, highlights of the day. As I think back, the all moments that were kind of extremely stressful at the time, but I look back on with, you know, the rose-tinted glasses that I remember very fondly, you know, so as a performer, it's like when you're integrating into a show and you've got no focus other than just like I turn up, I do all my trainings, 
my hands are ripped my like I've got tears in my hands like back in competition it was like bruised and taped and covered in chalk and you know going to a train station and paying for a sandwich and then seeing an open wound in my arm and being like oh cool this this person across from me thinks I'm crazy and so that that all transitions onto the stage you know I remember talking to people like yeah I miss like all the 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 dumb stuff of like going from wet to dry and changing this and like endless amounts of liquid chalk on your hands and like the tough skin and the rosin and you know the wet speedos and all that crap it's like I I look back on very fondly it's not just like but at the time you know it's like it's a day-to-day grind but it's like it's painful but that kind of lives with you and and you look back and you smile and you laugh from an artistic coordinator it was very similar it was basically if everything was running smooth my job was very boring because it's kind of by the numbers it's very it's we've planned everything we planned it way in advance we're just going down the list ticking it off it's all good it's all smooth so really i would get excited when something breaks whether that's a part of the stage or a performer because then it's like cool okay let's be creative like okay how do we solve this problem you know so those are the exciting times when it's like okay we don't have not to use too many technicals like a complete lift is broken a lift is a part of the stage so it's like either on house it's either all the way down and so you just have a, a hole where there's a pool or it's dry and we can't move it so where we maybe used to have a pool now we only have a flat stage and say like, okay how do we get performers on and off and this and that and then there's a deadline because you've got to show at a specific time and then you have to make all these changes and then you have to communicate them to the cast and then the cast have questions and you have to think on your feet and and okay actually i didn't think of that that's a good question okay give me 30 seconds while we rejig this around you know so it's kind of sadistic but those were my most enjoyable times as as a coordinator but it's not something you can do every day. If you do it every day and you're rocking 12-hour days, it just beats you down. But every once in a while, it keeps it extremely interesting. <laughs> That's great. You mentioned before that, you know, the, the cons- that when you're a performer in a show, there's, there needs to be that level of consistency. And it's different from, you know, a competition where you're leading up to that one point or that one day. And how is it from a sort of a sort of a physical point of view then to maintain that kind of uh, routine and rhythm with with your body? Like how did you take care of yourself to make sure that you could sustain that kind of uh, show schedule? And 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 what was the challenges in, in doing so? I mean, did you get any injuries that were, you know, out of overuse or, or um, that or you were able to moderate uh, your performance level to keep yourself in good shape? My proudest accomplishment, regardless that there's no way to check it or confirm it, but I know it and people I've worked with know it, is that in the, it's about 10 years now of doing performance on and off that I've never had a modification or a restriction or this, which is about 90% luck completely because freak accidents happen. Um, but there is a, like, there is a 10% of... Uh, manage your own managing your own consistency and your own routine so that you can approach the stage now how that differs from competition is i think your relationship to pain and what an injury is so if you're working towards a competition that comes around once every two years 
there is not much I wouldn't endure to step on the floor to perform that routine. I mean, we worked with one of my partners once. We competed uh, world trials, and he, he'd broken his foot like two weeks before. And But we had to do this competition so that six months down the line, we could go to Worlds. And so it's like as much tape as you can get on a foot. He wore a boot in training for like the two weeks leading up to it. And we simplified our routines and we got through it. You know, like it was commonplace to just be bleeding. Like, you know, so banking, I would hold people on my shoulders a lot. So the shoes eventually rip through your skin and from making the, the, the basket that people jump off, your wrists open up and tear. And it's just a part of day-to-day life. You know, you, we would just like, go put your hands in the chalk bucket so you're not bleeding on me. And, but like, it sounds crazy, but that is competition, right? But you can't exist like that nine to five for years on stage. So your relationship to pain and injury has to be, has to be changed. So I was fortunate in that I had a good relationship with our physios or PMED team, depending on which um, word you're more familiar with. And I would often just wander on in and be like, hey, I'm feeling this. Like, just check me if it's just a niggle. Is it a bit of pain? What can I do to get it to make it go away? Or is this something I should be concerned about? And I really owe that type of relationship to the kind of 10% of what kept me healthy outside of the kind of 90% that is just pure luck of not, you know, having to catch someone and they injure you or, you know, a stage moves wrong or a winch move is not what you expected and you have a, a freak injury, you know, because they know that if you're in, so they be in PMED, they know that you'll go to them if you're feeling any little thing and they can be honest with you and they know that you will be honest with them. So then obviously there's all the prehab and the rehab and everything that goes along with it. Like I remember when I first learned some kind of cradle stuff, which is hanging by the knees and holding someone in your arms. So it's a lot of pulling strength versus pushing strength, which is what I'd done my entire life. I specifically remember having a bunch of shoulder and elbow pain and it wasn't enough for physio or PMED to say, hey, you need to stop doing this. It was... They trusted me that they could tell me, you need to come in X amount of times per week. We'll mitigate it with, uh, we'll do like a week of anti-inflammatories. We'll do some manual therapy. We'll give you some exercises to do. If you follow this, it should all go away. If it doesn't, then we'll look at whether we need to modify what you're doing. But it's because of that openness and the ability to talk to each other very early on in any type of pain scenario that you run the best chance of mitigating an actual injury that takes you either out of your act or out of the show for a longer period of time. Do you think this uh, relationship with pain, physical pain, translates to other things in your day-to-day life? I'd like to think so, but I mean, it's different when your physicality is your job as well. So I remember working out at a CrossFit gym for a little bit, and in the end, I... It was a nice community. It was fun to do for a little bit. But the the point at which they would push themselves to just wasn't conducive to like my working environment, you know? So they're like, yeah, yeah, push, 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 one more, one more. And 
that's okay because they do their one hour in the morning and then they go work an office job or they work in a store. And, you know, if, if they catch the weight wrong and, you know, hurts their wrist, it's okay. If, if I do that and it affects my work, then it's, it's, it's a bigger deal, you know? And so it's kind of like maybe in some regards, the threshold towards physical pain is increased because I encounter it so often but also then the respect of it and the fear of it has to be to a greater extent as well. That's a really interesting answer. Do you think that also, I think, I mean, having to endure that kind of and have that awareness of your physical body and everything like that, I think that also would make you quite mentally tough, right? So in terms of your ability to, say, withstand something like a pandemic or, you know, I mean, does it play out mentally as well, you think? I think to withstand something like a pandemic, no, because it's so prolonged, or at least for me, it was a, a definite no. Um, the pandemic combined with a few other things in terms of shows and stuff that I'd been on was extremely like mentally taxing on me and one of the like, most difficult places I've been in mentally. But likewise, if you're talking about mental strength, like for one show I dropped like five kilos of body weight in like six weeks because I had to for an aerial act when I'd been hired as a as a porter which is like a big heavy dude you know and then it was like okay we actually need to do this as well and it's like there's no way in the time frame you're giving me I'm gonna gain the strength so instead it's like okay write out my diet do this this is what I need to hit it's like I lived and breathed it for like six weeks and then that was that so it's kind of extreme mental strength, at least at least in my my regard. It's like extreme mental fortitude in bursts. But something like the pandemic, especially because it hits very much to the core of who you are. Like if you're not able to perform, you're not able to do your job, but a lot of your identity is is wrapped up in that, then you you ask all these existential questions of like, well, without this, what am I? And I guess my job isn't an essential job. So what else do I do with myself? Where else do I want to go? Like, does any of this matter? And those are way bigger questions than like, okay, do I eat that donut or not? No, because I have this goal a little bit down the line that I want to hit. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N-floors.com. Do you think then that there will be shifts in the entertainment industry post-pandemic? I mean, I know a lot of people have left the industry, right? So, and I, I guess in equal in equal parts, there's been a lot of people sticking it out and waiting for the shows to go back up and 
uh, and get back up and running. I mean, you're in Vegas now, and and what's the vibe like that now? Is, is it is it people feel like it's business as usual? Because I'm in Asia, and it's definitely still not business as usual over here. So, <laughs> so there's a few parts to that question. Um, so yes, I know a few people as well that that once a pandemic hit, they transitioned out of performing completely. Maybe the pandemic was the jump start that they needed to move on from performing. Generally, they were thinking about it anyway, you know, so they, even before the pandemic hit, they'd started to pick up, or they started to think about an alternate career path, maybe taking some online classes, applying to a university or a college and doing things online or in their spare time. And then the pandemic and the time that that afforded them was really the kick to, to move on with that. And they were like, they had no bones doing it and they're happy now. They're earning all the money they want to earn in an industry that's brand new to them, you know, in the mid thirties or early thirties. And it's like a second win for them. If you weren't one of those people, the pandemic was rough because you never knew when it was going to come back, what you were going to do. And even myself, I, I had mentally dealt with transitioning off the stage, but I still wanted to be in entertainment and entertainment didn't exist. And so again, I was like, well, what do I do here? In terms of are things back to normal now and how things have changed, I think Vegas is, is mostly business as usual now on a day-to-day. There's been a lot of, there's a lot of budget cuts and um, streamlining. There we go. That's a nice corporate <laughs> word. <laughs> streamlining. No, but, but I mean, it, it probably needed to happen anyway. You know, all, I think a lot of the companies that do live entertainment had seen a massive growth over the last 10 years and profits were good, revenues were good and they could afford to throw their, their money around a little bit. And then on the pandemic, everyone took losses and then coming back, they're like, okay, let's be a little more economical with maybe how many people we hire, what positions we employ. Okay. Can this person manage two positions, which is that good? Is it not? I don't know yet. That's yet to be seen. But it is what is happening. I mean, when I say business as usual, like Nevada got rid of its mask thing and basically it, it re- removed everything like a month, two months ago. And so it's weird to kind of feel like we're back to normal and things are picking up. And I know the shows here, the performance still wore masks for a while on stage or and then it became if they wore masks. They wouldn't wear masks on the stage, but if they had anything that took them through the audience, they would wear a mask, which is the last time I performed. We didn't have to wear masks on stage, but any cue or um, part of the show that took us through or close to the audience, we had to have a mask either up our sleeve, down our pants, around our chin that we could pull up quickly. Uh, but it didn't really affect the grand scheme of things. you know. And then there's when it slowly came back, there was limits on the amounts of audience. So you're maybe in a 2,000 seat, theater but you're only filling it with 500 people which is never a nice thing to see from from the stage at least coming back from the pandemic you can go okay it's not because our sales are bad it's just because we're not allowed any more people but at least here it seems like things are starting to get going again projects are happening gigs are happening um, corporate events are starting to happen again so fingers crossed it keeps moving forwards but who knows who knows we had those discussions a lot, um, Anna and myself, through through the pandemic about all the conversations that were happening about mental uh, wellness or mental health, and like 
how do we allocate budgets and how all this nice to have, you know, in the industry and whether everybody was in this attitude, like, yes, let's make it happen. Let's make it a better industry. But we always were very conscious as well that there were going to be budget cuts because, well, we didn't work for a very long time. So do you see anything else other than budget cuts in terms of changes happening in the industry? I think budget cuts is a very negative way of thinking about it. It's it's the it's the absolute truth, which is probably from a fiscal standpoint why things are happening. But there were a lot of pre-pandemic in the few years leading up. There was a lot of productions and a lot of shows that maybe opened that maybe shouldn't have, or that didn't have the time granted to them before they opened, and it was like just get it out there. We need a new project. It's a new year, and with an expansion, like I. I truly believe that there's a limited amount of talent in the world that can do things to a super high level. And the more you want to open, the more the pool gets diluted. So I guess an optimistic view of that is that, yes, there will be less people employed in general, but the quality of people employed will be higher. And thus, the essentially, the product that is put out on the stage will be better would be a kind of optimistic glass half full way to look at it in terms of other changes i i don't know because people are trying to just go back to how it was as best as they can that's what i see i mean i know in the pandemic people toyed a lot with online things and how can we do this and how can we make this virtual or remote i think maybe off stage that will have the biggest impact but on stage i don't know how much circus looks good on a screen it really needs a fundamental reimagination if that's what you want to do with it. It's not, you, you don't get the experience of being in an audience if you're basically watching a front of house cam. I have a bunch of friends and uh, like people I've seen that did really cool stuff and approached it from a very grassroots level. You know, they had a friend with a camera that was into videography and then like, cool, we'll go set up a trampole somewhere or this or that. And you know, they weren't bothered so much about making it one single cut. They're like, how can we film something cool from the best angles? You know, even if it's a short, like three minute thing to some music, like get the best angles, get the cuts, get some fun transitions, get get some joy into it. And so if a larger company wants to approach it, I feel like it really has to be done that way. It's not like you can just play out a front of house cam with a single, no matter how high definition it is, some tricks, some transitions some scenes look better close up or if you're doing acting what you might feel as an audience member you don't feel through the screen because it it's a live performance it's not a movie so if you want to incorporate circus it needs to be shot like a movie and approached with the same um finesse and detail that a, that a cinematic experience would i totally agree i think it's kind of like the the parallel i'd make is a lot of people do digital captures captures of Broadway shows and then there was the Hamilton shot, you know, and that was far more visceral and in the face and close-ups and stuff. So it, it had a, a little bit of that movie feel. It was a wonderful balance actually of experiencing because you could hear the audience laughing and that, but you had enough close-ups that you felt like you were there and you were getting a Netflix worthy experience as opposed to just that wide shot camera look, right? So 
For sure. And exactly. It's like, what, what do you want the audience member to feel? Do you want them to watch it the same way they watch a movie? Are you trying to replicate being in the audience? Are you trying to give them something extra than if they were sat in the front row even? You know, so if there's a, an intimate, intimate moment between two characters, with a camera, you can be right up there. Now, you can't be right up there with a the camera during a live performance. So then do you want to gift that to whoever's watching it on the screen? And then so, so then you set it up and you do it its own thing. There's no audience or maybe it's an add-in later. Or, but it, it really needs a, a global rethink on how that's done. And I think you, so your example of Hamilton was, was, a great, was a great example of that. Yeah, and I also think there's a lot of ways to to look at it in terms of it's not necessary. If you want to have an added experience to the live show, it doesn't necessarily need to be the live show. Like you could have certain, if you want to see a virtual experience, it could be of the backstage stuff going on, you know, like you could, there's other ways to attract audiences to, you know, People couldn't, not a lot of people could come to the House Dancing Water because it's on the other side of the world. But if there was a virtual experience backstage where you saw things, the scuba divers going down and things like that, and you had this virtual experience, it would entice you to perhaps want to see the show more and and get over here because you've, it's just putting the show there out for people to see is not going to get people to come. You could give an alternative. That's my thought anyway. You could get, you could get a lot of other ways to people to, I think the virtual world has a lot of opportunity to get people back to live entertainment by looking at it from a different perspective um, and not necessarily just capturing the show and sending it out. It's a, it's about making a holistic experience that people want to participate in. And that's what I think has come out of them out of pandemic. Yeah. For sure. I mean, it, it's like, even think, think about it this way. It's like, if you do it correctly, I remember back to the days when I had all the Cirque DVDs and would watch them on repeat and they were they weren't shot just straight front of house you know they and they did extra tricks to what they probably wouldn't do night by night on stage it was very cool but think about it now how much more you could do so you're using the house of dancing water as an example so there is so much going on with that show that even people within the industry would be interested on how did they actually do this where did that performer come from? What was that load in like? But for a general public member, they have no idea, right? So they watch even even if they've watched the show live, you're upselling them on a behind the scenes DVD as they exit, you know. And it's like a guided thing, like oh, we see them, we see them go in through the aquacalise, which is the like a water entrance towards the stage. You know, they enter backstage, they go under, they've got a scuba diver. You have a shot of them playing like um, rock paper scissors. You know, you hear like the five, six, seven, eight, up, 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 was then the music comes in and then you see like the boat scene. And so then you get some cool cinematic shots of that. And then someone's like, oh man, that's, that's so cool. That's how it ties together. And they, they see a little bit of the kind of personality between, behind what they did on stage. And then if you, if you sell that online, whether it's to rent or to buy or to download, it's going to make people want to come and see it in person, providing you don't give everything away of the show. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be pretty cool. Back uh, when VR was starting, like I don't know, maybe I don't know when this was. You uh, probably have seen it, but um, Ka did a VR experience of backstage VR experience. I haven't seen that, but that sounds awesome. It, it was kind of cool. Um, 
I think it's, uh, to Anna is not news, but I get motion sickness with VR pretty easily. And it was in the early days where the cameras were not as fast and it was not that. So it was one of the hardest videos for me to see on VR. But it's pretty cool. <laughs> it is pretty cool. And I haven't seen any other. And I was like, I don't care. I'm, I don't care that I have a headache right now. I want to finish this video. Like, I want to get through whatever right. cat has to offer. Yeah. Right, right, so, right. I mean, yeah, to it, do that or have the underwater, like feel like you're underwater, you know, like with all the bubbles and hearing the speaker here right by your ear or. Um, exactly. Yeah, that, that would be so cool. And it's, I don't think it's so difficult to do, you know, if you've set up a show with someone wearing whatever 20 cameras they need to do and everyone knows about it. And then it's like, cool, I'm a diver for the show. You know, I see everything that goes on and I can look around and I watch it like. 10 times because I looked at this at this point, but I kind of want to see what's going on over here. But it actually reminds me of a really, here's giving away a, a million dollar idea to whoever wants it because it's not my thing to produce. But I remember like chatting with, so one of my friends who's a rigger, like we both play like video games together and stuff like that. And he'd worked on another show where a lot of it was like resetting props. They, they had like a, I think he was doing props on a VR experience. So, and I've done this a similar VR experience where you get the computer in a backpack, you're wearing the the goggles, and then you're basically in a warehouse. And then it's VR that is creating the scenery that you're in. But there's actual physical props you can pick up that then it might be just a uh, you know a stick with the balls on like that you see on the Avengers movies, you know, behind the scenes. But when you look at it through the glasses, it's whatever lamp that lights your way, you know. And he's like, man, this is so cool. But could you imagine if we had a bunch of like performers in there as well, all in the kind of green screen suits with the balls on? So, I mean, we were talking about it. It's like, oh man, imagine we played this video game, but like instead of like being against that boss, it's like actually people, you know, and they're like performing the things that you're going against or, you know, so it's like, you know, the 4D experiences from Disney where the rats run past and they have the little brushes that hit your things, but like, it's, it's like that, but like really taken up another notch. And that could be a way to, to combine, because circus performers would be great for that. You know, if you need someone to be a spider and they're in a green screen suit and they need to move like a spider and then the technology makes it appear as an actual spider, you know, like a Harry Potter experience or whatever. So there's, there's ways it could be combined for sure that, that the people haven't switched on. You know that Seven Fingers starting a VR lab, right? I did not know that. That sounds really exciting. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, cool. So you could Google it up. But yeah, the Seven Fingers is doing that. And um, I think it's the National Theatre in London did a bunch of theatre with VR stuff. But circus-oriented, Seven Fingers land, uh, released this. I don't know. The, it's called a Seven Lab or something like that. Okay. I don't know. I'll, I'll check it out. And um, yeah. yeah, hear me geeking out on the tech things. But <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that is. There's a bunch of stuff like on the fringes that's kind of starting to happen. It's just not been put into a big mainstream thing yet. So it, yeah. when it when it starts to be a mainstream thing, I think it will be super cool. You know, yeah, you have those like coming. Universal Studios zombie experiences, but take that up like a few more notches you know instead of yeah. paid actors in fake blood it's like oh my god what is that i'm looking at 
Yeah. <laughs> no, it's next level. It's next level. So um, as we finish up, tell us, we always ask our podcast guests these two questions, and I think you've already answered what you do love about your job and, 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 and the industry, but officially what's the best thing about uh, what you do for a living, Chris? I guess my canned response always is that I don't stack shelves. Like a bad day in the circus is like, at least to me, like a thousand times better than a good day in Walmart. I mean, I did, I, like I said, I, we were, our sport wasn't funded. We didn't have all the nice, niceties and stuff. So I remember, I specifically remember a time where I moved out of my parents' house to be closer to my gym and I worked a factory job. And I was like, I worked in a factory 6 a.m. till 2. Then I went home and took a nap. Then I coached from 5 till 7. And then I trained 7 till 9. And like to get paid to do the training part, essentially, is like so much better than anything else, you know. So that's, it's not a canned answer. It's just like a very fluffy and kind of like a good day in, in a, a, what I said, a bad day in the circus is better than a good day in Walmart. It's mm. a good answer, I so. think. And if you could change something about either the job or the industry, what would you change? Ooh, okay. How controversial are we feeling? I don't no. know. Throw uh, it out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I saw this question coming up and I was like, man, really, what would I change? And it's not whether I could could change it because I think it would work better. It's like I would be really interested to see how some of these changes would affect the workings of a company. For example, um, an open pay structure. So, or just a change in pay structure for a start. So I've worked for companies where we received a regular monthly salary, regardless of how many shows you did, which is really not. So I work like corporate circus. So we're putting gig work and one-off shows and events to the side for a moment. But if you're, If your job is 10 shows a week, but you're still paid a per show salary, whenever the show goes dark, you earn less money, but you kind of want to spend more money because you're going to go on vacation and all those things. So if you earn, if they kind of take what you would have earned over a year and divide it up by 12 and you get paid that monthly, it's like, it's really nice as a performer to receive. So I love seeing contracts like that. Likewise, I, I kind of liked when it was like, this is what everyone gets paid. Everyone doing the same job. This is great. You know where you stand. There's obviously, and that, that's what I mean by a little more open. It's like in a, in a corporate world, there would be like salary banding and all this. And you know where, okay, I come in at this. After so many years, I can expect a percentage year over year increase, a performance-based bonus or and whatever that means to be a performer. But, you know, it doesn't come down to like when you're first being offered the job for a creation and it's how good your negotiation skills are with or what time you came in if you're in early and the budget wasn't eaten up yet and you were a good negotiator you earn a, a bunch more money to someone else doing an identical job later down and not that everyone should earn the same you know people are there longer people have more experience different roles get more money all for that but being in a cast where people slowly start to realize large wage discrepancies that they can't understand is a very kind of toxic environment to be in because it becomes, Oh, well, this person earns so much more than me. They should be doing more than me in the show and things. And 
you never want that or you never want to be they got rid of it a long time ago you know but like you do this trick in the show and you you earn your extra 50 dollars and stuff because then it, then it becomes dangerous and you know maybe on a day when someone shouldn't be throwing that trick they're trying to throw that trick um so i think like wages and salaries is a very taboo topic to talk about but i don't understand why it is you know if if it's done correctly it should be a nice kind of communal thing everyone looks around and go of course this guy was here for me five more years he earns a little more than i did but if i stay here i see how i get my increase and in time i'll be there it in- hopefully it would increase employee retention you know so from a com- from a company level you're not okay we pay casting another big amount x number to hire a new performer and then it costs us so much to fly them in and then we pay another what to put them in a hotel for a month and then the training the the extra energy it takes to train them and stuff like that you know if there's like i said i think if there's, there's a way to do it openly to where you encourage employee retention because they see a long-term progression on their career and so I would be very interested to kind of see how a company could be structured in that way and kind of the social experiment it would be in the end, you know. Well, you better get yourself in one of those management positions so you can make it happen, Chris. <laughs> right, right. Get my calculator out and be like, okay, this is yeah. how we do things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a good answer too and I think it, I think it is a bit taboo to talk about salaries and stuff like that but I think it's something that should be uh, addressed more and more and 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 discussed because there's such a lack of standardization not just in the circus world but across the board across countries across roles in the technical realm in the artistic realm and and the value mm-hmm. of what that what each role brings to a production I mean we've we've all worked in different companies and different shows and different places of the world and it's just there's just very very little consistency and um it's really hard to navigate that if you're and a lot of the things that we had we had conversations with a lot of people during the pandemic and some things that came a lot up was that yeah we were taught how to be a stage manager or we were taught how to be an actor or we were taught about all of mm-hmm. these things in our in our university degrees and all of that but nobody taught me business nobody taught me the business of the arts and and so and the when you go out as a freelancer as a stage manager as an artist you are your own business you know you are and and if you're not equipped to manage yourself or again like come down to an actual negotiation and and then people just want the jobs too right because we love what we do and so exactly and people get taken advantage of that because they want they they want the job they want the role and 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 yeah it's just it's a it's a complex topic and it should be should be talked about more I, I think yeah i mean for sure i mean in plenty of other industries you see whether you're on linkedin or whatever and it's like a job posting for this and then you see the salary band that you would be in and then so you're like oh is that in- okay the job's interesting is the salary interesting for me and if it is, you do a CV, you apply, you go through the interview process. But it's like all super hush-hush in circus. It's like, especially from a performer standpoint, maybe you've traveled to do an audition, you've submitted demo reels, you've put hours of training in to do something specially for this person to tailor whatever you do. Because no no, no, industry, no show is the same, whatever. You, you always have to modify what you do a little bit. You've already kind of pot committed to the show before you have any idea what they may think of paying you. 
and so yes that's great because it puts all i mean it's great in a regard of it gives all the power to the casting agent or the hr person that that essentially negotiates with you because they've got you on the line already you know and they know that you i don't know many people that get all the way down that line and then say no to a job you know so you're really in a position of weakness in negotiating um and it's very few performers because they love what they do that sit there and go no you know i i would love to work for you but this isn't what i want instead they'll begrudgingly go you know what i'll make it work and then you see that down the line one year in when they're not happy and they're acting out you know and they put their hands up and ask awkward questions and company meetings or they they pick and they nitpick and stuff on, on problems that like you could just forget but maybe they just shouldn't have taken the job in the first place because they weren't happy with their salary or maybe they shouldn't have applied but they didn't know what they were going to earn you know so there's 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 some things that could be learned about it i think yeah i don't want to end it on a negative note no, but I, no, but I think it, it, it's there to sort of defend the process of saying, like, you know, you've got to ask for what you want, and also be happy if you do take it. Then you need to be happy with what that is, even if you do discover there are some inequities. That you know, I think that you've got to be if you're happy with the salary that you got and you've taken the job, then stay that way right like if like you said if you yeah. if you're not happy with if you're not happy and it's going to cause issues later on then then that's not a way to enter into a contract so exactly i mean some of the best advice i was ever given was in a complicated contract where it's like this is this it's based on so many shows a week you get this bonus at the end but then it's percentaged and all that stuff and it's like okay the best advice i got was just Look at your monthly paycheck. Are you happy with that? If the answer is yes, just continue. When you receive additional shows at the end or you do stuff and you get one, treat it like a bonus and be happy. You know? That being said, and I, I was like that for so long. That being said, if you then later turn around and you realize your coworker that does exactly the same job as you is on a wildly higher salary. I'm not talking like within the single digit percentages, you know? And it's literally just they negotiated better at the beginning. And there's no way, there's no amount of yearly, whether it's inflation or performance-based increase, where you're going to like get to where they are. It was just, and now you're stuck there. And it's like, I was happy with my number, but you feel kind of bad because like, well, should I have negotiated better? Should I have said no three times instead of twice? And then they would have come back. And, and you, you question all these things. And you, you don't want to be that person. And you don't want to bring that energy to a group. And I've been guilty of it. And I'm not proud of it. And I look back and I go, man, I wish I wasn't like that at that time period in my life. But it happened. And so you have to look at it and go, okay, could the structure that you are in have, have done something different that made this better? And me wanting to be in managerial roles and all that stuff, it's like, yes, there probably is something the uh, organizers of this could have done better to mitigate or with the foresight of down the line, like, okay, if we, if we do it like this now, we're going to encounter these problems down the line and potentially lose more money than we, we saved in the beginning because we lose that performer and it costs a hundred grand to replace them by the time you factored everything in. 
Yeah, absolutely. Replacing people is a is is an expensive process and <laughs> something that you want to avoid at all possible. So you want employee retention and, and people to be happy to be there, right? So Yes, it is. Likewise, there's if you don't like your job, there's no amount of money that's gonna make you like it. So there's that as well. You know, you still want to have a positive working environment and enjoy what you do. So Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for uh, meeting with us today. And I'm, I'm really um, you know, appreciative for your insights on artistic coordination and the world of acro sport and all the things that you do. So thank you. Thank you so much. It was great. Nice conversation. Theatre at Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.